welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is matt picheni from mjp property group welcome matt thank you rama happy to be on your show Thank you. A little bit about Matt. Matt is the managing partner at MJP Property Group. He has invested in over 5000 apartment units and is primarily focused on acquiring and repositioning multifamily communities. Matt has over 15 years of experience in property analysis, financing, acquisition, construction and operations. He is a licensed real estate agent, a Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac approved buyer and a member of the Forbes Real Estate Council. Matt has has earned both commercial real estate and real estate finance certificates from Boston University. With that, Matt, would you like to add anything to your background? No, I think that <laughs> that just about covers it, Rama. Yeah, cool. So what is your thought process in selecting multifamily, Matt? Yeah, well, you know, I started investing in real estate about 15 years ago. I was living in New York City at the time and working in the advertising world, and I started doing some real estate investment sort of on the side as a hobby and did that pretty successfully for about 10 years when my wife got approached sort of out of the blue with a really great job opportunity for her, and that opportunity was in Miami, Florida. So, uh we left New York and moved down uh, to Miami, and when we made that that transition it was sort of burned out from having worked you know i lived in new york for 25 years and there's a you know there's a lot of hustle and bustle and sort of you know climbing the corporate ladder so i was kind of burned out <laughs> from that and there wasn't any really great opportunities in miami in that realm because it was a much smaller market in terms of the big advertising agencies i had been been working on in new york and i decided that i wanted to, to see if i could make a go out of doing real estate full time since i had been doing it part time you know for 10 years i thought that i you know would be able to make a go of it and and luckily I've I've been doing it successfully for a little over 5 years now when I made that transition into doing it full time you know my initial thought was more along the smaller residential type properties but it became very clear early on for me that it just wasn't a scalable model for what I was looking to do and really the way to get into the larger scale multifamily something on a you know that was bigger that that could scale as a business was something that had always been daunting for me prior to me wanting to do it full time because I just didn't know how to get the financing and how to put something like that together and I learned about syndications and so once I learned about real estate syndications it really opened up a whole new door to me you know where now I'm invested in over 5000 units as you had mentioned and in the intro but you know those are investments those are not deals that I necessarily run right 75% of those deals are deals that I am just a passive investor in so I've been able to grow my portfolio from a passive perspective in different locations with different operators and that's given me a lot of diversity in my real estate holdings conversely i've also or not conversely but in tandem with that i've been able to learn from those operators but create some properties that i own the other 25% of my portfolio which are are deals that i either own on my own or deals that i'm a syndicator on where so where i'm the lead person i'm the sponsor on the deal and i bring other investors in um on my deals so i do i sort of straddle both worlds both the passive and the active investing awesome and can i say like you started with passive investment thing side and then moved to active side is that fair statement 
It's sort of, it's a little bit of both, right? Because when I first started off, when I was doing it, like I said, for about 10 years as a hobby, those were things that I was doing on my own. So those were active in, I mean, they were sort of passive, but sort of active. I did have a full nine to five job, which was actually more like a nine to nine job because of the hours I worked. But it, it was something that I sort of did on my own. Once I started finding out about the multifamily and the syndications, I wanted to get involved in that world. And I immediately was looking for deals, but my first several large multifamily properties that I got in were deals that I got in as a limited partner, right? On the passive side, as I was learning how to do the deals, how to underwrite them, how to develop the relationships with the brokers and the property managers. You know, there are people who come into the business and I think have a little bit of luck behind them, or maybe they're just in a good market or have really great, you know, rapport building skills, but that are able to come in and just get a deal right off the bat. What I found it, for the majority of people who are looking to actively syndicate deals is that it takes it takes a while, right? To, to get into a market, to know a market and get that market to know you to have the brokers feel confident with you as a buyer. You know, if, if you can't actually close on the deal at the end, you know, the broker's gonna, it reflects really poorly on that broker, right? So the broker's gonna wanna make sure that you're someone who can, you know, bring the deal to the finish line. So that sometimes takes a little bit of time to develop that the trust with those brokers before you can really break into a market. So as I was building that trust and building that rapport, I was also building my passive investment portfolio. Cool, awesome. So how did you find these passive investment opportunities? How did I find the sponsors for the investments? Yes, sponsor our opportunities, those opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, the way that I found out about these different opportunities was just through, I joined a, one of these mentorship groups. Um, I also went to a bunch of uh, different meetups. Now, the local meetups I found are not really focused on multifamily. I actually started one when I was in Miami at the time. And then when I got up to Boston, uh, there was one multifamily one up here, which I've actually ended up sort of taking over as one of the hosts on it. But that's a great way is through sort of local groups and then through, you know, these larger mentorship groups, you can also meet people online, but I always a little wary about that. Like I, if I meet somebody online, I then want to try to at least have some phone conversations or some Zoom calls if not actually meet them in person so that I can really get to know them and trust them. I mean, we're talking considerable amount of money that is being invested in these deals. And so some guy who just like, message me on Facebook. I'm not, you know, going to give them $50,000 to invest in their deal. But someone that I've gotten to know over time that has a track record, maybe I know other people who've invested with that person before, that gives me a certain amount of confidence in going ahead and and entrusting them with my money. And and likewise, the same thing with me when I'm doing deals. I mean, most of my investors are people that I've you know, all of them are people that I've gotten to know and built up a, a level of trust with uh, over time. Um, it's I've never gotten in a situation where I met someone and a, and a month later they were uh, investing tens of thousands of dollars with me. Um, usually it takes a little bit of time to build that rapport where both parties feel comfortable. Yeah, that's so true. And so what are all the factors you would consider before investing in any deal as a passive investor? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, Rama, I'm actually writing a book right now that's telling my whole story, my whole life story, not the whole life story, but the part of my life story that's involved in real estate. It's, I think it's a really interesting, fun narrative. And through that book, I'm bringing out certain points that are important for people to look at. And at the end of the book, the last chapter of the book is kind of pulling all of that information together and putting together almost like a checklist type of format that passive investors could look at. I mean, there's many different things that you need to look at 
when you're looking at a deal. You know, I just had an article published in Forbes where I distilled it down to three things that you want to look at. One is the sponsor. The other is the market. And the third is the deal itself, right? At a very high level, those are the three things that you need to look at because a good sponsor can make or break the deal. You want to be in a good market. It doesn't necessarily have to be the fastest growing market in America. I have done deals that are in extremely fast growing markets. And I've also done deals in slow and steady markets that have done just as well. You don't want to be in a market that's declining, but as long as you have some sort of base level that's maintaining or going slightly up, that should put you in good shape. And then the deal, the deal itself, what is the deal? What are you doing? And what are, then this ties in very closely with the sponsor. What are the assumptions that the sponsor is putting in that deal? If you're anticipating, you know, 10% rent growth year over year for the next 10 years, I don't think your deal is going to perform very well because I don't know any markets that, you know, consistently are driving that kind of rent growth, you know, and then things like the cap rate, you know, what cap rate are you buying it at? What is the cap rate that's assumed on the sale, sometimes called the exit cap rate or the reversion cap rate? You know, if, if people are putting in a cap rate that you're buying it at a cap rate right now and selling it at the same cap rate, personally, I think that's too aggressive. I think cap rates are really compressed right now. I think cap rates are going to go up, which actually means the values go down. I think the market's going to soften in the next five years or so. And at least that's how I'm underwriting. So if it doesn't soften, I'm in good shape. My deals will do will perform better and we'll be able to exit them more quickly. But I've sort of underwritten for a worsening case, if you will, so that if things do get a bit harder as we move forward, we'll be okay because we've already accounted for that in our underwriting. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that you want to sort of look at and and speak with the sponsor of the deal about what they're doing and what are those assumptions and why did they make those assumptions? Because a lot of times, you know, they'll have a very good reason why they did something that might seem strange to you. Yeah. So the point you mentioned is like a very, very key point uh, in from passive investor side, I agree. So what do you do as a passive investor if deal does not go well, Matt? I cry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's unfortunately not much you can do as a passive investor if the deal is not performing well. I mean, there as a passive investor, you're a limited partner on the deal. So you really don't have control over the operations that are happening on a day-to-day basis. Now, I like to make sure that in all the deals that I invest in, when I'm looking at the operating agreement, and you know, there's lots of legal documents that they have to look at when you're investing in these, but I like to look in the operating agreement and make sure that there's at least some sort of clause in there that would allow the the passive investors, the limited partners, to actually take over the management of the company if they need to. There's usually, I mean, there's sometimes it's not in there at all. And then the way that I've seen it, the way that I set up my deals. If there's a super majority that wants to, you know, remove the manager, which is, you know, usually the sponsor um, from their duties, you're able to do that. And, you know, I have been involved as a passive investor in a deal. And I've heard of other people who have been invested in deals where there's been a problem, like a, a bad problem where the manager, the sponsor of the deal has acted in appropriate manner. You know, I mean, in one case that I've heard of, the, the manager was embezzling funds, which is problematic, right? So if you don't have that that clause in there, you have absolutely no recourse in that one particular instance that I'm telling you about that a friend of mine had invested in. They actually went ahead, got all the limited partners together and they voted and they voted that manager out and they brought another person who had a minority portion of the sponsorship team in as like the lead manager and had him run the deal. And he actually was able to turn the ship around and get that deal performing well. And then ultimately they sold the property and, and, and made a nice profit on it. But I mean, that's a, you know, 
wonderful story, right? But I don't think things usually end up that that well when things like that happen. I've heard of another story where one of the partners was embezzling money. The other partner realized it, uh, kicked the guy out, but they ended up having to go ahead and sell the property at a loss. The guy who was embezzling was, was performing the role of the property manager as well. And so they were saying that they were making units ready and charging the company, you know, five to $10,000 per unit, you know, saying this one's been fully renovated. That one's been fully renovated. And when push came to shove, it turns out they hadn't renovated, hadn't touched any of them. So there they were with hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe up to a million dollars. I don't know the exact financials on it, but a substantial amount of money for work that had been done, that had been paid out and the work had not been done. And the property was in, was problem, was in a big problem <laughs> that they ended up needing to sell and the investors lost money on the deal. So unfortunately, as a limited partner, you're limited as to what you can do. You can you know, hopefully you're investing with someone who's going to be sending out at least quarterly, if not monthly statements. You hope that the statements are accurate and that they're not cooking the books and that the information, you know, is good. And that, that's why it's really important that you've gotten to know and trust the person. And hopefully they have a track record where they've done other deals. Hopefully some deals that have gone full cycle where they've made some investments for some money for people. I look, I see some deals that I get offered from passive investors and maybe they have like eight or nine deals, but none of them have gone full cycle. You know, all of them are only a year or two old. And and, you know, that that makes me a little more cautious to invest in a deal like that versus investing in a deal with someone who's been around doing this for five, 10 years. They have, you know, a few deals that have gone full cycle. They have a you know, stable of, of really happy investors. You know, that makes me feel much more comfortable in, in a limited partner type of role where I don't have a lot of, you know, control over the deal. Cool. Yeah. And thanks for sharing that experiences. So uh, would you share like why you transitioned from passive to active and how was that process? Well, I've always been interested in doing things from an active perspective and I haven't really transitioned, I would say so much as just continued to expand my roles. Uh, you know, I had like I mentioned earlier, I had been in doing active real estate investment for about 10 years prior to moving into doing this full time. And so, you know, I've, I've almost sort of transitioned into passive because I hadn't done that before. And while I was expanding those passive investments, I also did active. You know, I think that I bring a lot to the table based off of my previous experience and based off my professional experience when I worked in, in New York in the advertising world. I was managing very complex teams of over 100 people, a lot of times global teams teams in many different locations and, you know, multi-million dollar accounts for Verizon and Visa and Coca-Cola, these big companies. So, you know, as a, I was a project manager on these teams. So I'm actually a PMI certified project manager. So, you know, to have somebody who really understands business and knows how to get things done on time, on budget, and at the highest quality possible. And those are sort of my three directives as a project manager is to make sure I'm doing those three things. I just have a lot of experience and skill with making sure things are getting done efficiently and, and to the greatest quality possible. And you know, as I moved my way up through the ranks in, in the advertising world and as a project manager, I ended up you know becoming a director level and then a VP level. And at that point, I was overseeing multiple project managers. And that's almost what I do now as an asset manager. So as an asset manager, I oversee the property management teams on the different properties and make sure that they're doing things well. And I use a lot of the same skills and techniques and tools that I used as a project manager on these large advertising campaigns when I'm, you know, a lot of that, those skills are directly transferable to the real estate world. And then I obviously have the real estate experience as well, understanding real estate, having done a number of real estate deals where I'm able to sort of meld those two together. And it's something that I enjoy doing and I'm passionate about. You know, my biggest thing is about trying to, you know, use real estate investment as a form of 
of activism. And what I'm looking to do, these properties that I'm acquiring is really transform those those properties. You know, I'm looking to revitalize and elevate these multifamily communities. And in, in doing that, I'm enhancing the lives of, of both the residents who live there and also the investors. You know, we're looking to make a profit as investors and we do and we make a nice profit, but we're not doing that by being slumlords and, you know, cutting all the services at the property. We're actually making these properties nicer, cleaner, comfortable, wonderful places to live. It makes people happy. Uh, it increases the tenant retention at those properties, which is great for us. And so we're improving their lives and we're making some profit in doing so. So it's a win-win. Yeah, so true and awesome. Thanks for sharing those things. And you want to share any highlights or challenges of recent acquisitions? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think every deal presents its own challenges. Right now, the market is really still hot, even though, you know, we're recording this in, what, October of 2020. So we're still in the midst of of uh, COVID, right? And But, you know, we've made it through the, the first initial scare, I think, that everyone had the first few months. And we've seen that multifamily is seems to be still holding pretty steady, you know, almost all the deals I've seen in almost all the markets. So, you know, you still have a very competitive landscape for real estate. So the hardest thing, I think, is finding deals that you can underwrite in a conservative manner and still, you know, have the the highest price or have the best offer for one reason or another and actually acquire those deals. That's the biggest challenge I've seen and, and that I've had in, in the business, especially in the past few years. Cool. And would you share any of your best apartment investing experience, either active or passive side? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think overall, they've all been uh, doing pretty well. Some perform better than others from a cash on cash perspective. What I've found is the ones that aren't necessarily throwing a lot of cash on cash to have a bigger payout at the end. So that's nice. You know, my best story from an investment actually is not a syndication. And it's kind of a long story, but the Cliff Notes version of it is that I did a 1031 exchange. I had a property and I've actually wrote a whole chapter about this in my book. Um, I have a property in, in Brooklyn, New York, and we were actually able to sell the air rights for that property. So we still own that property, but have sell, sold off basically extra developmental rights to the the uh, lot next door where they're building a, a large luxury um, high-rise condo. And so in doing that, um, was able to get a really nice chunk of change and still hold on to that property, which is a beautiful cash flowing property. But with that nice chunk of change, instead of going ahead and paying the taxes on it, I did a 1031 exchange and bought a property in uh, Kansas City, a smaller property. I just bought for myself, me and my wife own it. And that's a nice cash flowing property. And um, so we bought that all cash. And, um, you know, then we were able to later go ahead and, and refinance that and take equity out of that and not have to pay taxes because it's a refi. Now, whenever we sell that property in, in Kansas City, if it is a, if the 1031 is still in existence, which I hope it will be, we can 1031 into another property and again, defer the taxes. If not, we'll have to pay taxes when we sell that property. Um, if 1031s no longer exist, or we could just hold on the property forever. I mean, it's a nice cash flowing property in a great market. I have no plans to sell it at any time soon. Awesome. And any worst of passive or active investment experience? I invested in a deal that was, it was the first deal that I invested in passively, but I did, I scrutinized it, but you know, maybe hindsight, uh, now that I've learned what I learned, maybe if I looked at it, then, you know, the lens I have now, maybe I wouldn't have invested, but it looks very good on paper, you know, and I didn't really know what to look for. And it was a nice group of, of sponsors that I like, you know, one of them, I'm still very good friends with and have invested in other deals with him and he's invested in my deals, but they made some miscalculations 
calculations, I think, when looking at the market. And, you know, I think one of the things that they did was the first several units that they renovated, they just renovated them too much. You know, I'll give you an example. They put in granite countertops, but I don't think that that market really needed or wanted countertops. They found out later they were able to do a renovation on a unit for, I think, like a half to a third of what they paid on the initial units and still get the same rent. So, you know, that's a, something that's important. So, you know, the, the, by the end of it all, when they sold the deal, luckily there was a 1031 exchange buyer who was looking for something in that market. And so, I mean, I think everyone would agree that he overpaid for the deal and it allowed us to actually exit the deal with a very, very small, you know, profit. But I you know, I think we we ended up exiting the deal with, a I don't remember, I, I believe it was 6% overall profit. So, and we held it for a little over two years. So, you know, 3% a year, which is not, you know, maybe it's keeping up with inflation. Maybe it isn't, you know, we missed out on the opportunity cost of having being able to have deployed that capital in a better deal that would have had better returns. But, you know, overall, I didn't really like lose money. So maybe I lost on opportunity cost, but not from a dollar perspective necessarily. But that's probably the worst deal that I've been involved in, especially on the multifamily side of things. Cool. So any one advice that impacted you, Matt? One advice, I don't know if there was any particular advice that has impacted me so much. I mean, the the one thing that I always find myself saying, because I think it's so true in the real estate business and really in any business or in life in general, is that it is all about relationships. You know, for me, the deals that I've gotten to get as a sponsor, those have been through the relationships that I've built with property managers and with brokers. The deals I've been able to invest in passively is because of relationships that I've built, built with other sponsors you know, who are looking to syndicate the deals. And in deals where that I've done, right, I need to raise capital for those. I've been able to raise that capital through the relationships that I've built with other investors, right? So, you know, it's it really is all about relationships. I heard that early on when I was first getting into this business and every day that just rings true to me. So I think that's very key. Yeah, so true. So any one book that impacted your life and what way? A book. That's a good question. A book that impacted my life in one way. I'm laughing because that was an essay that I had to write for college, actually. And I actually ended up writing it on Star Wars. And the reason why it's interesting is because I met with my advisor in college the first time, you know, the first meeting to meet with her, you know, before I selected classes, it was required. She told me that they were all, the advisors were were fighting over me because my essay was so interesting and they all wanted to work with me because I had a unique background, which is really fun. But when it comes to real estate, you know, the, the one big book that impacted me, I think is really the one that that has impacted just about everyone when I talk at a, any sort of real estate event or, you know, I hear anyone talk about that purple book, right? The, the Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I think turned a lot of people on, you know, for me, I ended up reading it right when I moved to Miami. And that was part of that was a portion of the catalyst that had me go into doing this full time, you know, and building those multiple passive streams of income was one of the big takeaways. And the other big takeaway for me was about getting out there and networking and like going to seminars and things like that, even if they think that even if you think that they may be run by a, that they might not be the best thing, right. And that's what got me out there and going to conferences and getting to meet people and networking. And then, you know, that's how I found out about the mentorship group I joined and all those other kinds of things really came from that. So that was a big um, catalyst for a lot of my uh, current career. Cool. So how are you giving back to community, Matt? 
Well, I give back in two ways. Number one, I'm very active in a charitable organization here in Boston called Caritas uh, Communities. And at Caritas, we work to really help people and help sort of end homelessness here in Boston. But we do this not by creating a shelter or anything like that, but by giving people a permanent place to live and helping them with other types of, you know, with their finances, with getting jobs, things of that nature. And we, we work with a lot of, you know, veterans, right? Army vets. We work with a lot of, you know, women who may have been in a, an abusive, um, you know, situation, people who have had substance abuse issues, all different people from different walks of life and really just trying to help them. And so I really like it because it's, it's housing based. So, which is, you know, it's got that real estate bent to it. Um, and it's also helping people, which is a, an important thing to me, just like on the properties, I'm trying to enhance the lives of the tenants there. This is enhancing the lives of people and, and helping them sometimes get a fresh start. Uh, and the, the other thing I do to help give back is, you know, I, I talk with people all the time who are looking to invest. These are passively or actively. People call me, I get a lot of phone calls. I'm on the phone a lot talking with people and just trying to help them figure out what's a good strategy for them. How do they want to approach things? And I love doing that. I love talking with people and hearing their stories and what they're looking to do and anything I can do to help them achieve, you know, passive income is an exciting uh, thing for me to do. Cool. So how can listeners can connect with you, Matt? Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned that the book that I'm writing will be coming out in, in a little bit. And so I'm happy to give uh, people an option to get a free copy of the book. I'll be doing a lot of things to promote it when it first comes out. And all of that will be sent out to people who've joined my newsletter. And you can join the newsletter simply by going to mjppg.com. That's my website. Uh, there's a contact page there. And you can also just email me directly. That's my email is Matt. That's M-A-T-T at mjppg.com. So either the website or a direct email either way it's fine and put you on the newsletter you can find out you know i send out some educational information and get a copy of the book and if you ever want to set up a call that's a great way to do that and we can connect about anything you want <laughs> yeah cool thank you matt i really enjoyed the conversation oh, thanks rama i love what you're doing with the podcast here and, and thanks for having me on as a guest yeah thank you if you like the show please subscribe share rate and review and if you want to connect with me please send me a message info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.